the New Zealand Tech Podcast. Brought to you by Gorilla Technology. Proactive and strategic IT. Welcome along to the New Zealand Tech Podcast. This is episode 271. I'm Paul Spain. I'm Bill Bennett. And I'm Mark Isles. Well, welcome along, gentlemen. Uh, great to have you both here. Uh, Bill, you've just uh, just landed back from uh, Europe, haven't you? You oh, must be still uh, hit by a bit of jet lag. I am indeed. Yes, I snoozed this afternoon. So you might stay with us for the uh, for this entire episode. Oh, yeah, it's breakfast time to me. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe you just remind listeners where you fit into the world of technology and and the media here in New Zealand. Well, I'm a journalist. I work for newspapers, magazines, TV, radio. Whoever pays money for people to write about technology. Great. And Mark, your company is Tech Research Asia. That's right. So uh, I'm an industry analyst, uh, an executive consultant. Um, so we, we as an organization work around Asia Pacific, mostly with technology vendors, uh, helping them with specific research projects to find things out, or we're also doing consulting work to help them with um, their sort of strategies in market. Great. Looking forward to uh, hearing from you as we dive into the show. Now, uh, first up, I wanted to talk a little bit about Google Loon. Now, this was something that we uh, we heard about well, probably going back a, a couple of years when uh, Google did their first test of the Google Loon technology in the uh, in the South Island of, of New Zealand. So sort of close to home there, quite relevant. And recently, what what they've done is they've been I mean they've been testing this technology in varying parts of the world, and what they what they're trying to launch are these big uh, balloons, tennis court size balloons that are going to float around the world and provide uh, internet access in varying parts of the world, predominantly locations that have struggled to get internet access in the past. And their latest uh, innovation they've been testing is a 16-metre crane that can fill, lift and launch one of these tennis court-sized balloons in under 30 minutes. This sounds pretty cool, Bill. It does, it does. But I've got my doubts about the project being viable over the long term because don't balloons move about a bit? Um, And don't you need a stable connection? Isn't the stability of the connection quite vital and consistent speeds and so on so i i think if you're a bit desperate and you're in the third world and it's uh, it's the only um broadband technology you've got well yeah great but i'm not sure it's much i'm not sure it's very stable beyond that the other thing is is that the places that this would be used third world places would be used, the sort of places that are prone to hurricanes and typhoons and cyclones and god knows what so well, supposedly they're supposed to sort of float around in the stratosphere, and they'll also actually that high. they'll they'll be able to control themselves so that they can uh, you know they can ride the the movements up there you know backwards and forwards or, or there will be a lot of them as the uh, as part of the picture, and I think they stay up for uh, something like ninety days if I remember correctly, so they get, they get quite a quite a while before they have to be replaced, and but they, um, they have stable connections. Uh, yeah, I think when they were testing it in the South Island, I mean they had aerials that were they were fixing to uh, to buildings, 
um, to be able to pick up that uh, that signal and then you could maybe distribute from there. So I, I think it's great that we're testing out different oh, yeah. uh, technologies. Have you followed this at all, Mark? What's your, what's yeah, your thought? Not, not deeply. I think the danger with any of those balloons is you're going to end up with a Red Bull team jumping out of them. Yeah. So I think that, might, <laughs> that might be the biggest issue with the technology. <laughs> like I think it's conceptually, conceptually interesting and you've got to admire Google for pushing the envelope in a number of these areas. Whether this one will fly, yeah, personally, I'm like yourself, Bill, I'm perhaps a little cynical. Uh, but the fact that they're testing some of these technologies in, in sort of crazy environments, you have to respect the, uh, the investment in R&D. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's that let a thousand flowers bloom thing. You tr- chuck a lot of stuff out there and some of it's going to stick and some of it will be great and some of it won't. And yeah. Good. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm curious to see where, where it will go. If, uh, you know, if the balloon thing makes sense, you would imagine that uh, other people would get in on the same uh, concept as well, right? Well, I, um, I mean, is there any regulation over flying balloons in that part of the um, atmosphere? There must be some kind of regulations. I mean, planes don't want to fly into balloons. And, yeah, and certainly while they're being launched, you'd want to yeah. be careful, uh, you know, particularly when they're, the, uh, when they're tennis court-sized balloons, yeah. right? No. Uh, could take out your drone, could take out a, uh, well, that sort of size. You, do, uh, you could certainly do some harm to a, a commercial uh, uh, jet, jet liner. Yeah, yeah. Listen, I, I still think it's hard to find the business case for that when, you know, if you look at most of the developing countries in the world, they certainly missed the fixed line era. But they're just, those guys are just jumping straight to 4G and increasingly to what's coming next as the logical technology. They're not going to do wired in some of those countries, but um, the investment case between, you know, somebody actually finding the money to go into developing countries, typically high population, to deploy 4G seems to make a lot more sense. Is there really a, a case for a balloon where you can't justify 4G? Um, I think the thing is, is Google's got a huge amount of money and they've got to spend it somehow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, there are a few tech companies with a, with a bit of cash and uh, I don't mind them throwing it into, uh, into research and development oh. as long as we get, some, we get some good results. No, the more of it, the better. Yeah. Now, on to um, a little Microsoft story that, that came up this week. Last year at Microsoft's Build Conference, we heard about uh, well, three uh, projects from Microsoft around getting applications into uh, into Windows, Windows building Windows 10 type applications. Uh, one of those was um, a tool designed to make it very easy to bring iOS or iPhone apps to, uh, to Microsoft's ecosystem. Uh, another was for Android apps to uh, to come into uh, to Windows, particularly on the mobile type front and tablet uh, front, and then the other was for uh, traditional Windows apps to uh, to be able to get moved into the Windows App Store. Um, and for for quite some time, it seemed as though Microsoft maybe were going to uh, dump the um, what they had announced Project Astoria, which was aimed at bringing those Android apps into uh, into Windows. Um, and in fact, in the early versions of the Windows 10 uh, mobile builds, they included the technology, and you know a number of people online were sharing their experience with running Android apps uh, within Windows 10 mobile. But that's been uh, that's been killed off. Bill, uh, what's your thoughts on this? I mean, it's sort of been mooted for a, for a while that this would happen once they you know pulled that technology out of Windows Mobile. But it you know it does seem as though there's there's a challenge that Microsoft has you know here around getting people onto Windows 10 Mobile, largely around the lack of apps. 
Um, why do you think that they stopped? Was it uh, that just the experience wasn't going to be good running Android apps on on Windows, or they're so confident in how easy it will be for people to move their uh, iOS apps across that uh, they've taken that approach? Well, I think there's two things. I think the first one is is there's probably not a huge amount of value in Android apps on Windows. I think there's a lot of value in iOS apps on Windows, but. Um, Android apps tend to be, you know, in general, they're not as, they're just simply not as good. I mean, I, you know, I hate to sort of be as blunt as that, but they're just. You sim- always say that about anything to do with Android. <laughs> yeah, I do, but that's because it's true. <laughs> um, the um, the second part of that is, I mean, I, I read something earlier today, and I and I wish I could remember where I saw this, saying that um, Windows developers earn about twice as much for the same effort as Android developers. In other words. Windows is a far more lucrative platform for um, app developers than Android, which on one level you think, well, that's amazing given the share Windows share of um, uh, mobile devices compared with Android. But then when you know that, for example, um, Apple would be 20% of all mobile devices sold by um, unit numbers, but, but accounts for 80% of all income for app developers which means that, in effect, app developers on um, Android is a very, you know, very unlucrative business. I think I think that tells you something. I think it's another aspect of those numbers, which is why um, Windows probably doesn't need help from Android. Probably Android needs help from Windows. Curious. Inter- interesting adjunct. Yeah, and I, I must admit, I tend to agree. So it doesn't concern me. You know, obviously, Microsoft, from the mobility standpoint, you know, universal app strategy, Windows tend to extend the, the PC based and the tablet based into phone. Makes a lot of sense. Uh, and the acquisition recently of Xamarin to pick that up and complete that for developers and get developers onto the platform strategically all makes sense. Yeah. So the, the change to Project Astoria, uh, I think with, as long as they keep the focus on moving developers across onto the Windows 10 platform, doing that via iOS and via Xamarin, equally good strategies I'm not sure you necessarily need the, the Astoria component but they've still got to get a little bit more traction happening in terms of getting those developers across and getting the apps out to drive that mobile platform yeah. still not enough traction there but the tools are coming I, hmm. I, I, I agree with that but I, I, I say I think the value in um, bringing it from Android probably isn't as great as elsewhere they're, yeah. they're getting a much better you know, bang for their buck coming off of iOS yeah, I mean, the demo that they showed, I think it was just in the last week, they showed a demo of, a, uh, I think it was an open source uh, game that you could, that they, they took, and maybe they, they had a video of it, I didn't, uh, didn't drill into it, but it took, I think, five minutes to take this open source iPhone iOS app and basically bring it through the, uh, the converter and be able to build that as a Windows app. So... That tool sounds uh, sounds very good, and very capable, and then yeah, there's the acquisition of, of Xamarin, which I think that you know that we've come across. That's just been mm-hmm. sort of confirmed or, or announced in the, in the last week, which of course is is the software development tools for developing those uh, those mobile apps and being able to uh, use one tool that will generate an app that will run on Android, iOS or, or, or Windows and I guess Microsoft hope more and more people will be using their uh, their tool and generating a, uh, a Windows variant. Indeed, look and I think if you if you talk to the developer community I think generally the consensus on that is quite positive Xamarin was a much like tool so it's a, it's a pretty smart acquisition Hmm, hmm now, other bits and pieces uh, going on? Well, lots, but I think let's drill in. 
Mark, to the I think the reason you've been in New Zealand, uh, you've been working on a project for uh, for Microsoft, doing some research for them. Uh, this is around uh, Windows 10 and business. Um, so maybe you can fill us in on what that research project was and uh, what what the findings have been. Yeah, sure. So look, um, very interesting. So it, it's quite unusual to do what we call primary customer research, which is actually to say, you know what, we're not going to do an extrapolation of other research and therefore assume what's actually happening in New Zealand. We're actually going to interview uh, New Zealand customers and New Zealand partners and find out what's actually going on in New Zealand. So um, we've interviewed uh, over 100 um, New Zealand businesses, and that's um, across all segments, so from the kind of typical New Zealand small business, 5 to 24, right their way up to, to large organizations with more than 1,000 users to ask them, what are they planning on doing with Windows 10? What do they think about Windows 10? You know, are they going to deploy? Are they not going to deploy? And then we ask the same thing of partners. Uh, and so we've been doing a little bit of work just sort of consolidating that research and, and sort of discussing that and seeing what the implications of it are. So, so what, what's the big headlines? What, yeah, what, so headlines. what are New Zealand businesses <laughs> yeah, so think what, about so what we found, Windows 10? Indeed. So what we found, interestingly, so data overall quite positive. I'll sort of dig into some of the particular areas, but we found 18% of New Zealand businesses have already deployed Windows 10 uh, to some extent. So that's either a partial deployment or a full deployment, which was probably a little higher than, than we were expecting. Uh, and another 60% actually plan to deploy uh, within the next 12 months, which is actually on par. We've done, we've actually run very similar research in, uh, in other markets in Australia, and we've seen it in Hong Kong and Singapore. It's sort of in line, but a little more aggressive actually than the partners the, that we were talking to that typically might do the installation and the services, who were actually saying they're expecting a much lower rate of adoption on, on 10. So we're seeing a little bit more propensity from customers here in New Zealand than perhaps would have been anticipated. You, you probably didn't chat to Gorilla Technology. Most, <laughs> most of our customers are already uh, you know, reasonably well down that, uh, down that track. Uh, but I guess it depends on the, on the size of businesses as well. Tell us what that variance is sort of between the smaller businesses and, and the bigger businesses because certainly traditionally you know, large businesses were very, very slow moving in terms of you know, catching up with the latest software updates. And, mm. you know, I know we, we've talked about it on the podcast before, uh, organizations like you know, Spark, who are a big, you know, technology company yeah. and telco. And for, uh, you know, for many years, they were uh, they were stuck on Windows XP. And it was odd to see a, a company that was sort of in that space that wasn't sort of playing with the latest uh, technology. But more and more, we're seeing that, that sort of change now that uh, businesses have worked out how to make those migrations. They're, uh, they're more geared up to be able to stay on to uh, more current platforms? They are, and, and actually we saw it, we're seeing it as a as really probably a closing of the gap between the way that small businesses typically behave, being more nimble uh, and adopting technology uh, more quickly and being able to digest it, and large businesses that used to typically wait and do a big forklift upgrade and do it as a part of a PC refresh, it would take years to plan, they'd wait for the third service pack. That mentality is changing, and actually the two groups are coming together, and we're seeing big businesses needing to be more nimble, and particularly when you're trying to attract Gen Y and Millennium actually into your workforce. Um, they expect to have the latest tools. And actually, interestingly, we asked one of the questions in the research around, uh, for the customers, how many of um, your employees have actually brought in their own Windows 10 devices? And it was 35% of businesses that actually had one of their uh, employees actually walk in with a Windows 10 device. And so, of course, that's accelerating the plan. So we had 43% of the companies then said, that made us actually accelerate our plans and sort of move everything forward. So this, what we coin as the consumerization of IT, and this is not necessarily BYOD, but just the very nature of the fact that people have these consumer devices, they're running Windows 10, they expect to use them in the workplace. 
workforce uh, is meaning big businesses need to be a little bit more nimble. They need to look at adopting technology more quickly. Uh, and they're certainly looking at new devices alongside as well. So we saw a lot of propensity towards two-in-ones, uh, that kind of hybrid device as well as part of that deployment, rather than perhaps pure red tablets. Interesting. I think there's more value in Windows 10 for business users than there was, say, moving from 7 to 8. I mean, that was a, well, we know it was a bit of a botch historically. Um, But there was so much fear and uncertainty about 8 amongst business users that I talked to. um, where you just don't, I'm just not seeing that with 10. So I think a lot of people are going to go from, I mean, I should imagine some would even go from XP to 10, but there'll be people going from 7 straight to 10 and missing 8 altogether, which be part of it there's, there's, there's definitely more value for them to do that yeah indeed and actually one of the things that came out of the research too was one of the big inhibitors from from windows 8 deployment was the fact you actually had to do end user training as part of that and, and yeah. frankly it's, it's 2016 no one expects to have to do training on how to use technology anymore yeah um so that the feedback's come back that actually with 10 they don't anticipate doing that there's no planned training programs so they're skipping and going straight from 7 to 10 just-in-time knowledge. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> now, uh, were you able to gather any of the things that you know were concerns for businesses in terms of why they might not be uh, leaping onto Windows 10 any sooner? I mean, the, those stats look pretty good. It sounds like uh, you know Microsoft are in a, in a much better position than they have been for a long time in terms of uh, businesses being uh, you know being interested in uh, being on the the latest Windows platform. Um, but I think you know some organizations will be a little bit fearful of Windows 10 and that it's moved to this sort of surface service model you know where we're seeing Windows as a surface the service that's going to keep updating itself. Um, any, mm. have you, did you get, get much feedback on that, well, we that did, aspect of it? Well we did we actually asked the question of course we asked you know why would you why would you? go to Windows 10, mm. um, to which the three top answers were um, looking at cloud, looking at adoption, adoption of cloud, integration of mobile and desktop, and a new applications platform. So those are the drivers towards 10. What came across as the, um, okay, so if you're not going to move to 10, what are the reasons you're not going to move to 10? Uh, one was around IT budgets. Um, it's relatively small, but about 10% of the audience, there's always obviously budget limitations. Uh, the other one was around potential infrastructure, which is hardware, which interestingly, not as big as you would anticipate. The hardware requirements have largely been flat uh, over the last two or three years. It's not the, you know, I need to have twice as much memory in my machines. But the biggest one, actually, the biggest inhibitor, uh, the biggest challenge is application compatibility. So actually, interestingly, back to the previous point we were talking about with applications and, and getting that right, in a world now where you You've got suddenly browser-based applications, older client-server applications. You've got new mobile applications. How do you bring all of those forward? That, I think, is going to be one of the biggest challenges for, for some customers as they move forward is, is what do you do with all these applications? And in a world as window, of Windows as a service, how do you keep testing that and making sure that your environment's still going to function? Mm. So that, mean, that'll be a challenge. Yeah. Mm. And, I mean, conveniently, there's some great technologies now that make that a whole lot easier than what it used to be. So you know, businesses shouldn't need to be as fearful around those, those sorts of things. But yeah, some certainly have some very old bits and pieces of technology that they have to make work one one way or another. They do. Well, like I say, I think the next we describe this as the next battleground. So currently, a lot of customers looking to move to managed services, so looking to take their IT, the core IT infrastructure, and move it out to a partner and have the partner manage that core infrastructure for them. The next battleground will really be as you start getting your head around how do we have integrated environments for applications across mobile and desktop. What does that look like? 
Uh, and although we're seeing say, very strong propensity in New Zealand to move to 10, so it was actually 77% within 24 months, uh, those ones that won't move, there's certainly um, some work there and, and some opportunity around application compatibility. Um, and any feedback ar- around the, uh, the mobile aspect of, of Windows? Did you come across any organisations that were interested in Windows 10 because it can also run uh, on a mobile as well as on a you know PC or, or, or tablet or, or two-in-one type device? Yeah, we did. So it was actually the second most um, popular reason so outside of deployment of cloud services. So the anticipated tight integration between Windows 10 and um, cloud services like Azure uh, was the number one uh, driver. Number two was that integrated mobile and desktop environment. So it's, it's coming through loud and clear uh, from companies and especially when you think about some of the trends uh, in New Zealand as well around activity-based working people aren't typically doing um, process-orientated tasks anymore on desktops and in offices it's it's not the world we live in so the world we live in is a lot more fluid a lot more flexible based around activity-based working different devices and that lends itself to actually needing some degree of synergy between the application platform on mobile uh, and also potentially on desktop or on hybrid so it's it's that that crossing over between mobile and desktop is going to be super important. Mm, that's that's curious because at the you know, I mean at the moment uh, with the Windows Phone it's been a, you know, quite a small part of uh, you know what people have used within uh, their organisations. But it will it'll be curious to see whether um, whether that improves in line with uh, with the growth in uh, usage of, of Windows 10. But what are your thoughts around that? Oh, the potential for uh, Windows mobile devices is huge. I mean, we were, we were talking before we started broadcasting about I'm waiting for the next wave of um, hardware from Microsoft. Um, yeah, it's overdue, and I think we need to see some... some um, some devices this year that, that are going to make that possible because the, I mean the, the uh, you know Windows mobile platform has sort of been you know talked down from you know all all directions in uh, in, in recent months okay. and Microsoft hasn't helped itself by not having a I guess a good variety of of devices or even yet any uh, uh, upgrades for their existing um, you know Windows eight point one phones haven't uh, haven't landed yet right no well you you said you mentioned earlier about me not being a big fan of Android the it's not because I'm an Apple fanboy it's because I'm a, not a big fan of Android um, Windows is actually a great platform for um you know for mobile it's uh, the windows um, phone uh, um, operating system is a great operating system for a phone um and it's great the way that it does integrate with the rest of the microsoft world I, i'm surprised that it hasn't happened you know it hasn't happened more as a business phenomenon so already. so what do you think microsoft needs to do to fix it oh it needs needs some damn good phones some <laughs> Um, iPad mini-sized tablets like now. Interesting. Actually, just in the research as well, and I came from a device conference earlier, it's that combination. We, we sort of described this at a macro level about companies no longer looking at the back-end services from IT. If you're a CIO, you're not looking behind you to see what's in your data center anymore. You're looking at your end users, and it's about the delivery of services to end users. It's about, and that's about the device. It's about the applications. It's about what those people can do with those devices. So we're expecting, and actually the research um, showed that actually 49% of companies are planning to increase the size of their device fleet 
both as a result of Windows 10 and over the next 12 to 24 months. So we're going to see a huge surge. You're already seeing some of these other manufacturers come in with interesting hybrids and tablets and mobiles. It's going to get super interesting in that market. Yeah, we're going to talk a bit more about that in next session, I think. Well, yeah, let, let's jump in. I want to hear a little bit about Mobile World Congress, uh, Bill, since we did drag you here specifically when you probably prefer to be uh, sleeping um, <laughs> so that you could fill us in on your, uh, uh, your trip to Barcelona. So, yeah, what were the, what were the highlights for you? Well, it was a bit of a surprise that the um, – that, I mean, th- I was taken there by Huawei and I was expecting when I was invited – for it to be a new Huawei phone. I mean, I knew there was the um, the Mate 8 is imminent. It's coming anytime soon. And that was on show at MWC. But it was quite a surprise to see that the thing that they were showing was, in effect, Huawei's version of the Surface, which is a Windows 10 mobile computer. It's, it's like a laptop, you know. It's a laptop come mm. tablet. Um, and it's very much geared towards businesses. I mean, although it comes out of Huawei's consumer division, confusingly, they were talking about this being a business device for fleet buyers in um, organizations. Does it have a SIM slot in it? I mean, Huawei, we know, as a, as a manufacturer of uh, mobile uh, handsets and, uh, yeah. and of network equipment, routers to go in your home. I asked that question. And I didn't get an answer, which I don't know what that means. That may mean that they, it may mean there's a variant with and without. I don't know. Um, but I definitely asked that question um, of the Huawei people. And we have to wait, wait and see because it's still a few months off, and it's yeah. sort of second half of the year, isn't yeah, it? It doesn't, arrive, it doesn't land in or, Europe until June, and it doesn't arrive in um, New Zealand until September. I, my guess is they have they actually haven't made a firm decision about putting a SIM. Um, slot in the in the device um so why are they why are they doing it well yeah it's that's that i did ask i did ask um a huawei executive about that and he said um, and it's really quite a good reply he said that we've they've got lots of customers that are buying their phones and they and they're telling them that there's a gap there's something they there's things they can't do with their phones and not only that but the pcs that they're using and remember this is a Chinese company, so they'll be talking to a lot of people in Asia. They're using rather old style laptops, you know, the big clunky brick type power supplies, the um, largish screens, largish cases. They're probably not even onto Ultrabooks yet. And one of the complaints is, is that they you can get these like nimble, small, powerful devices to do your phone calls and to do your stuff in your hand. But if you've got to get on and work and work with spreadsheets and so on, the, the devices are quite clunky and big. Well, that's not entirely true. There is a class of lightweight, portable devices around now, but maybe that that part of the market is underserved. And, and in fact, um, that kind of two-in-one hybrid space, which is where the Surface sits and, um, and where um, the Huawei MateBook sits, it's the only growing part of the traditional PC market. I mean, it's growing at about 20% a year, whereas the PC market is actually declining at close to 20% a year. So, I mean, it's growing at 20% a year off a small base, but it's where all the action is mm-hmm. in that PC area. So it's a smart move from that point of view. It's a smart move from Huawei extending their brand. And they've done something rather Apple-like. And, and, and in fact, it's, it's what Microsoft has done too. And that's to keep, the, keep it very simple. So they didn't come out with 17 different types of laptop, which someone like you know, HP might have done. Um, they've come out with one product in a number of different um, 
processors and memory sizes. Um, so it keeps, it's, it's a very simple message. Um, I, was, I was actually impressed by the device, but it, my word, it is so much like a Surface. Um, and it's even got a, a, a pen um, with a slight like the surface. Mm. Um, well, it's, I mean, we've seen some similar products from uh, Lenovo and HP as well, and of, of course, you know, Samsung and Apple with you know slightly slightly different offerings, but are overlapping somewhat into that space. I asked the um, the South Pacific CEO um, why would Huawei get into a market which is in decline? You know, the laptop market is is falling, and he said that they see that there's a huge demand for that particular slice of the market and it kind of complements their phone business. But not only that, he's also said that they've built up a huge pool of expertise building phones and they've been sitting around wondering what else they could use that expertise to do um, when they came up with the idea of um, (laughs) building a laptop. So... um, it's, yeah, it's a very it was an extraordinarily interesting product and it's not the kind of thing you'd expect to be launched at a telecom industry conference I mean you'd expect phones for sure but you know um, a laptop would be the last thing you'd expect to see it uh, launched at a phone conference yeah that's quite curious well it's because it's Huawei and they're a phone company hmm. and it's their that's their natural territory that's their sort of home turf that's so do you think Mobile World Congress is going to go more in that direction? It'll, it'll become a, a much broader event than what yeah. it has been in the past, very yeah. much focused on the mobile networks themselves and, uh, and, a, and a small number of uh, devices? Well, I, I think for years now it's been clear that mobile space, the mobile device space, is where all the action is in the, in the tech world. And that really was kind of like the last move in that, the last piece of that jigsaw puzzle to fall was Huawei coming out with a laptop it's it's, it's kind of the um, culmination of that move from um, the old world to the new world and I think yeah you'll see more of this kind of thing coming out of the basically out of the telecom industry I mean you know in a sense telecom industry has done a reverse takeover of the whole IT business yeah, I remember a comment a while ago suggesting Huawei were uh, selling TVs as well. I, I mean, I haven't actually uh, you know seen anything around that. Certainly not within the New Zealand market, but it seems like they're uh, they would they would quite like to squash Samsung if they could. Yeah, Huawei's on a trajectory. Actually, their um, their goal is to be an Asian Apple. I mean, they actually talk about that. In fact. Uh, Richard Yu, who's the uh, the CEO of the consumer business globally, he was talking at the conference about um, Samsung and Apple are very much in the company's sights. He, they want to go past them. Everybody would like to go past Apple. Yeah, but I think this, these guys <laughs> possibly have an opportunity to do so. I don't think, I don't think there's anyone else who does. Interesting. I mean, Apple's profits are, are kind of off the charts. Oh, but, yeah, uh, yeah. The, Look, they're, the, not, they're, they're not going to go past Apple in profits for a long time yet. But the thing is, is they're on this trajectory, which is just explosive growth. I mean, five years ago, no one had heard of this company. I and mean, two years ago, no one knew how to pronounce their name. Now they're just everywhere you look. And um, they have by far the largest stand at um, at Mobile World Congress, and they have more than one stand. I mean, I, I, they had a consumer stand and a business stand. Um, they sit bestride the mobile world like a colossus. 
Yeah, I think people forget as well. I traveled over both Huawei and, and one of their sort of main competitors in China, two ZTE, yeah. both based in Shenzhen Valley. And we forget sometimes same number of people living in Shenzhen Valley that there are in Australia and New Zealand combined. Yeah, the, yeah. the engineering and R&D focus there is phenomenal. And, and of course, 25 years ago, that, was, that Shenzhen was a fishing village. Yeah. Yeah, I, actually, it's interesting you mentioned ZT because ZT were there in were quite visible there. But I, I was talking to the Huawei guys about them. I said, "Well, these are your competition, aren't, aren't they?" And they said, "Well, yeah, but it's more than that. They're the government. ZT is government owned, and Huawei is this kind of free enterprise model." And it's interesting that the Chinese government, which is still nominally a communist government, is actually actively p- pitching. A, a kind of communist-style state-owned entity in ZTE against this free-trading Huawei outfit. And it's like the Chinese governments are playing with um, you know, economic models in, in that space as well. It's, it's really fascinating stuff to watch. Now, one of the other topics for Mobile World Congress was, uh, was 5G. That seemed to be getting a lot of press. What were your, um, your thoughts where this is heading, is it really going to be landing uh, next year? If if it were available that quickly, who would want to jump on board at the bleeding edge? Well, um, my take on that is there's there are two distinct visions of where... There's actually many distinct visions, but there's two camps of visions of where 5G is heading. And one of them is that it's not going to be for four or five years, and it's going to be a revolutionary change, and that's going to mean swapping out the kit on the mobile towers around the world. Um, A huge investment for telcos who still haven't capitalised on their investment in 4G. I mean, if, if it was to happen any sooner than about 2022, companies like Spark and Vodafone won't have earned the money they paid to install their 4G kit. So... Um, that would be a problem for the industry, which is not exactly rolling in cash. I mean, despite everything we hear, the telecom industry is not rolling in cash. The Europeans want to move to 5G much faster than the Asians, and they're talking in terms of there being projects out there next year. Actually, there is a, there's a, um, I think it's the Asian Games may have a 5G installed in, I think it may be Korea, Somewhere, anyway, in the next um, couple of years, I think that's two seven, 2017, there's going to be a test site, but it's gonna be, it really is going to be a test. You see, the problem is, is that they haven't agreed on what 5G is yet, not by any stretch. I mean, the only things they're really agreed on is that it's going to be speeds of greater than a gigabit per second, um, latency of next to nothing, you know, only one or two milliseconds, and and much greater bandwidth utilization by sort of pulling pooling bandwidth from different spectrums together. That's pretty much the only things that everyone's agreed on at this stage. Beyond that, what is 5G? Well, it depends on who you talk to. It depends on which barrow you know, they're pushing. And the testing we hear about in the US isn't, you know, they don't have any mobile handsets that they can test 5G with. It's not down to that no, sort of but, uh, spec. It's, you know, they're, they're really doing, um, you know, quite quite high-level testing, I suppose. Well, yeah, there's a bit of an issue of, it's just a prestigious thing. It's a bit like the sort of moonshot, you know, the Russians getting um, Russians getting Sputnik up and then the Americans have to go and do the whole thing of landing on the moon first. There's an element of that, and in fact, that's a good analogy because the amount of money being spent developing 5g is kind of comparable with the the space race money that was spent back in the um, 60s it's the biggest development project in history 
building this, but, but as I say, they, people still don't know where it's going. What was quite interesting was the day before the Congress started, I, I got into the back end of a conference, of a sort of side conference at Barcelona, which was sponsored by Huawei, but it had other, um, other vendors along and users and telcos along talking about 4.5G, which is a, a kind of bridging technology. And 4.5G is essentially a, a software upgrade to the 4G network. So um, you, you wouldn't need to spend masses of, massive amounts of capital getting a 4.5G network up, but you'd get a lot of the technologies that you would see in 5G would be part of that, particularly the speeds and the um, um, bandwidth consolidation. I think we're going to see that in New Zealand relatively soon. Um, there's lots of people dropping hints to me that we're going to see that in the next couple of years, starting to roll out 4.5G projects. And I definitely, um, I heard from Huawei earlier in the, or earlier in 2015, that they were talking to um, New Zealand telcos about testing the testing 4.5G here. Um, we were the first place to have a really fast 4G. In fact, for a while, New Zealand was the fastest 4G. We're actually the second fastest in the world now with the 4G. Um, so it's a natural place to be a bit of a playground for the, um, the kit vendors. And I think you're going to see it here quite soon. Mm. Yeah, we've actually got a separate chat with Vodafone's global uh, chief technology officer that will be slotting into the uh, uh, podcast over the next few days. That was an interview I did a few weeks ago. So, uh, you know, certainly prior to Mobile World Congress, that on the same topic. So we'll be, we'll be adding that one, and I'm sure a few listeners will be quite keen to hear that discussion. Now, uh, moving on from 5G, the other thing at Mobile World Congress that maybe you wouldn't have expected to be hearing a lot about is virtual reality. And we've also had a number of announcements around augmented reality just over the last few days. So uh, it seemed like just about every uh, uh, smartphone manufacturer had had some play into that virtual reality space. Uh, last week, I had a look at what Samsung were launching with one of their cameras, which is a, basically a little ball with a camera on either side uh, that supposedly has a view of 190 degrees. Now, of course, me wanting to test out, well, how how good is this thing? Can it can it really actually record you know right around? Well, so I I stood sort of uh, you know perpendicular to the um, the lenses and so I was sort of in the point where the the two images would be joining together and I was curious to see just how good uh, that image would be and of course with just the two cameras it wasn't it, it wasn't brilliant it sort of did some sort of merger of them but you know you couldn't see my face with me uh, uh, at at that exact point but lots going on in that space what did you get to what did you get to see and and do you think all of this focus on virtual reality makes sense oh, well in the main consumer hall at mwc you couldn't shoot a gun without killing someone who's wearing virtual reality glasses i mean it would just been there was just everywhere um i think it's exciting for the industry because it's an it's the it's the last application Frontier for mobile phones. It's the last thing you can. I mean, we've we've got video through mobile phones, so the the one thing that we can use more bandwidth, more data, and so on is virtual reality. So for the telcos, it's an application which I think they may be able to sell. But what was noticeable was that the hardware was everywhere. There just wasn't much in the way of virtual reality content. In fact, to the point where I saw the same content on more than one vendor's stand. Um, 
which strikes me that there is there's a mismatch between the you know the hardware being ready, but the um, not the software, but the app, the actual content not being ready. I think also that I don't know. It, I just I just felt it was a bit gimmicky and a bit sort of hey kids, we got this exciting stuff. You know, the new phones they're not that exciting, but hey, look over here, we've got virtual reality. Wow, it's just a bit of a feeling of that about it. Um, it was. Very. It was most noticeable on the Samsung stand, where I, um, I was observed that people were interested in the virtual reality kit. They weren't interested in the S7. The S7, you could. I mean, they, they, there was no models for you to touch, unlike the other phone companies which had uh, models on show. Um, I mean, I managed to get my hands onto the um, the HTC and the um, um, the LG phones. I couldn't touch a Samsung. They were in glass cases. Which was odd because we got hands on them here in New Zealand. Yeah, I know, yeah. I know. <laughs> but, which is so weird. But um, but the, the Samsung stand had a lot of action around virtual reality. It was almost like it was what they were. If it wasn't what they were there to do, it was what people wanted to see from them. Yep. Now, one of the um, devices we've been waiting, waiting to hear from was HTC's Vive. They've confirmed a local price of $950 US for that for New Zealand. Um, but then they've come back and said that includes GST but doesn't include shipping, um, which doesn't sort of make a whole lot of uh, <laughs> sense to me. So I don't know whether I've misread that, but because uh, something else I read online was, was saying something different to you know what we got from their PR people, but maybe they were sending that because of what had been appearing online uh, around that. So th- well, that, that means it'll land here at about $1,500. Something like that, yeah. yep. Now, a range of other devices. One, one actually came across recently, a company called Scully, who have got an augmented reality motorcycle uh, helmet. So there's, there are things going on in all God, directions. I wouldn't want to be distracted by augmented reality if I was riding a motorbike. <laughs> well, no, I guess it gives you more heads-up display type, type oh, yeah, thing, yeah. right? So you're not actually having to you know look yeah. down at speedometers and, yeah. and, and other things. And um, I don't know, maybe you can play some games in your headset as well, well you're uh, riding your bike, Bill. <laughs> God, I, think I, um, I need all my wits about me. <laughs> and then um, we've had uh, Microsoft confirm or well, open up the pre-orders for uh, Hololens uh, developer kits. Now that was on show at MWC, and I didn't get a chance to try it on because there was a there was quite a queue to um, to look at it. But there was it was definitely visible, and there was interest. I mean, the Microsoft stand. I would say it was much smaller than the Samsung stand, but it was probably busier. That was that was their star attraction. Mm, what were they showing, by the way, with the um, Hololens? What was the use case? Well, I didn't get to try it on, but um, um, so I don't know. But it mm. looked it looked like people were having some fun. So. Mm. Mm. Well, those who pre pre order it, and I'm not sure what the what the New Zealand story on it is. To be fair. But, yeah, that US $3,000 price, so I guess that works out. You know, if you have to add in uh, some GST, you're heading in the direction of $5,000 uh, pr- pretty quickly. Those are going to be shipping end of March, 30th, 30th of March. They're nearly here, and I'm expecting to have a little bit of a play with one of those at the end of the month at Microsoft's Build Conference. So, well, One of the things I did hear at MWC was that, one of, that an application that's going to be shipping with that is Skype. Now... That's very interesting. That means that mm. people are going to be... So that means you're going to have like Star Trek-like meetings where you're in a room with other people. On Sky. I don't know what that means, actually. But it does sound... You know, I'd love to see what, yeah, what they do with cool. that. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, there was a use case, I think, that they demoed or, or showed off in one of the demo-type videos early on, which was uh, somebody maybe getting help from, was it a plumber or something like that? So they were able to uh, get shown what they should, should be doing in their, in their own environment. Um, with how to fix something with the the help sort of coming in remotely, but of course they had to do it at their end. So oh. it'll be curious to see what the what the realities are. Yeah, I bet of, the plumbers still charge the call out as well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's call up now, not call out. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, Mark, what are your thoughts on uh, all, all this activity around sort of virtual and aug- augmented reality? Are you, are you seeing any interest out there from uh, businesses? Do you think it's you know these things are sort of meeting particular needs and, and desires out there from a business or consumer perspective, or is there still you know so much to discover about how these technologies might work? Yeah, I, th- I think certainly the people that we talk to, and it's interesting that you mentioned both as well, because we do see the augmented reality as opposed to the virtual reality as two different scenarios. Mm. Uh, and I think there's a huge opportunity in both. I think this is not, I don't think this is likely to go the way of 3D television. Do you know what I mean? I think this, mm. I think this one's actually got some legs. I think the concept of being able to transport yourself properly into another world in a fully immersive way is fundamentally just interesting. And there's, there's obviously the gaming potential you go there. But certainly we've been talking to, and actually I met a couple of application developers a few weeks ago now looking at the augmented reality for, for doing projectioning of, for example, what buildings and flats look like before you buy them. You know, if you're going to buy a place before it's built, you can actually do this augmented reality thing and actually walk through an apartment that doesn't exist. It's like, that's kind of cool. You, know, there's a, you, can, you can literally just keep writing and writing and writing the, the use cases for what you might be able to do with this thing. So um, I think what's always interesting about Microsoft is they seem to have their developer mojo back. So they're launching the HoloLens with a developer kit. It's like, yes, now there you go. That's what's interesting is build it and then see what people will write in terms of application on it and then we'll be amazed I should point out that 20 years ago Silicon Graphics SGI yeah I remember that yeah they were selling this stuff um, not yeah, didn't sell very much <laughs> clearly because they could still be around <laughs> now but, but um, in a sense the, um, the applications and so on were the same things they were talking about 20 years ago so it's taken that mm. long for it to go from being something a bit esoteric and you know pushing the edge of what was possible being quite mainstream. Well, a other, huge amount of processing required to make this sort of well, thing work as well, right? You, not only you that, need some real computing power. Not only that, this is this is a killer app for fibre, I would imagine. Because mm. um, the amount of data that you need to communicate was probably going to defeat a lot of mobile networks, but wouldn't defeat the fibre network. Well, on that fibre front, we got, uh, we got an update through from the government today. Yeah, We're... Communications Minister Amy Adams was highlighting that uh, now that UFB, the ultra-fast broadband network, uptake on it now is, uh, has hit 20%. So that's, a, I guess, a, a good milestone. I think it's faster than Korea or Japan managed as well. So that means that we're, yeah. we're adopting it really quickly. Like, there's been lots of complaints about how slow we've been adopting it. But you know, even when the complaints were at their peak, we were still adopting it faster than anyone else has anywhere else in the world so that's curious isn't it <laughs> yeah. yeah well I guess where, where politics are involved you'll you'll always hear a bit from both sides won't you so yeah and, and once again we just 
go to bed at night and say our prayers thankful and not in Australia with the NBN indeed <laughs> indeed so it's got to be it's a shining example I think of how to do it it's always very easy to knock but generally it seems to be going well take ups there and yeah the, yeah the other side of the Tasman yeah not so much mm, they've, they've certainly got a, a few challenges and Fong Array is sitting at the top of the the stack with a 26% uptake and of course they've had ultra fast broadband available there since very early on where you know North Power finished their rollout well getting towards two years ago May, May 2014 that's really exciting because Fongaray is not a rich city so that's that's really exciting that we can do that in a city which is you know it's not one of our wealth spots mm. well it speaks to the the price point for ultra fast broadband not being you know much different than uh, than than getting a, a traditional uh, fixed internet connection one thing we'll probably dive into this uh, maybe in a future episode but i've been trying out skinny mobiles broadband service and i know we, we talked about this probably previously uh, bill but i've given it some interesting testing in varying places around the country and this is you know 4g you know based sort of i guess alternative to fixed internet and the results on it and the and circumstances have been uh, been pretty good so i've been getting fiber like speeds yeah so i'll be testing mm. that in varying places around the country and it's uh, you know it's pretty good as a sort of a low low cost uh, low cost option um now the other thing uh, i wanted to touch on before we finish up this week um is auckland what's being uh, spoken about anyway by now, who's this being spoken about, Bill? This is the $1.2 billion uh, blowout of Auckland's IT budget. Uh, Vic Crone. Ex- mayoral candidate. Ex-Zero, now uh, mayoral candidate. And ex-Zero, I guess, ex-Chorus, ex-Telecom. Well, that's true too, yeah. yeah. And, yeah, so um, she, she's she been sort of, you know, commenting on uh, uh, the article that I think uh, came through from the, the New Zealand Herald about the, the huge amount of money that uh, the Auckland Council has poured into IT over about the last, uh, f- you know, five, five years or so. Now, when you think of it like that, it's not, not quite such a big figure when you divide it up over five or five or six years. But even so, that's a lot of, a lot of cash to be, uh, to be spending on technology and uh, tech-based initiatives such as uh, you know merging the uh, the IT systems of the previous councils before the, the super city came into being and uh, yeah it's, it seems as though there's been a, a real sort of lack of accountability maybe there and a, and a few issues I mean I don't know the ins and outs and you know I'm sure we've got uh, listeners that will probably be on both sides some of our listeners will I'm sure be inside the council and would maybe say that look everything's on track and uh, this is just what it takes to do the do the job. What's your thoughts, Bill? Well, we could see it coming. I mean, I remember when this deal was struck that there was a lot of talk. I mean, most people who write about technology said the potential for it going bad is there, and it it, it came to pass. Um, heroic IT projects—they're oh, they're so twentieth mm. century, and we 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 don't do a lot of that anymore. I mean, there used to be days when the banks would get into billion dollar projects and so on it's, that, that time has passed it's, it's much more incremental generally and whenever you see a huge project like this you, know, you just know that the risks are, uh, are massive well we don't have a good history of these sorts of projects in New Zealand do we the, the <laughs> been, world uh, doesn't have a good over, history over, yeah. over decades of, of uh, terrible uh, failures and, and yeah. budget blowouts but, right? but, but it's, it's a global problem Paul it's, it's, yeah. um, it's not it's not 
it's not just New Zealand it's not just um, local councils it's not just government it's not just I mean it's big business has the problems too one of the interesting things about this of course is we've got a mayoral candidate and this is her home territory this is the stuff that Vic knows about Um, and so she's got so someone in the council's handed her this huge stick to beat them with Um, and she can probably get a lot of mileage from this and that's a good thing because it'll 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 make people pay attention to this because so often people think of these things as something that happens in the background and it's all handed by masters of the universe who do this stuff and we just us mere mortals just don't have any comprehension but you know something us mere mortals have got to pay the damn bill and it's a huge amount of money, one point well, two billion yeah, dollars. This, this is not uh, this is not pocket change that we hear. You know, we hear yeah, about well, other, other projects. I mean, what else have we heard that's up in this direction? Well, let, let me let me just put it into perspective. It's something like two grand per rates payer. So pretty much my rates of this year is my contribution to that bill. In, you know, in very round numbers, and that's that's the perspective. But it's it's more or less one year's worth of rates. That's that's ridiculous. I mean, we, we're getting we're getting a brand new railway for uh, for not much more money than that. So it's just out of all proportion. We should not be building these heroic mm. systems anymore. We the parts are everything's been done before. I'm, I just simply do not believe that Auckland is a unique council which needs everything customised. We can buy this damn stuff off the shelf. Oh, we could go and buy Wellington's old one. That would do us. Thanks. <laughs> Mark, what's your take on this? You're based in Sydney. There's, uh, you know, it's a different landscape over there, but from an outsider's perspective, um, have you seen similar examples to, to this in, in Australia? Yes, we have, unfortunately. And whichever way you cut it, 1.2 billion just has a lot of zeros on the end of it. <laughs> and for, and like I say, for the, for the size of business, I, I agree with Bill, which is the level of customization. Everybody thinks that they're different. Everybody thinks that they somehow need it, their own custom bespoke system it's a it's a 1980s 1990s view of the world that's not the case you can buy a lot of it off the shelf we had a classic example in australia that was very similar uh, down in melbourne they decided to build their own ticketing system for the trams why would you do that there's a million places in the world that have public transport ticketing systems that would have done the job at probably half the price what did that what did they spend on a ticketing system for the for their trams it was supposed to be originally uh, if my memory serves originally 450 million dollars and, and bear in mind, there's only about to, 4 million people. To look after the trams. To, to do ticketing for, for trams, so to do a, some sort of ticketing system for the public transport. That blew out to 600 million the last time I saw it. And so there's a million places you can see around the world that have done ticketing systems already. Just go and buy one of those off the shelf. Well, well you know. There's no need to build a custom system just for one city's worth of public transport. But, but it makes that, no sense. It would probably be, it would probably be cheaper to make Melbourne tram, trams free. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. People, people, start, people start projects the way they used to start in the 90s, where they start with, we're going to write a, uh, we're going to write a massive document with our requirements in it. It's like, really? You know, you can probably get, you can get this process down there. We live in a nimble, agile, fast world. You, know, you need to spin things up quickly, fail quickly. You've got to move on with these things. These big projects are just, uh, they're, they're archaic. It's a, it's, it's a kind of weird form of narcissism as well to think that you're so special that you've got to have the, all this yes. special stuff. Yeah, I mean, some of it, you know, some of it's also tends to be baked in with, you know, they want to somehow provide some of that business to, to companies that reside, you know, in New Zealand, in Australia, wherever it's being done because it generates jobs. But then actually, if it's four times as expensive, is it worth that? Or are you better to put the money into something else that will yeah. create jobs? There's a balance there for governments to think about. 
Yes, a bit of a, a bit of a challenge to get that balance right. Um, well, that's us for this week. So uh, thanks everybody for listening in. Now, Bill, where do people track you down online? Um, on Twitter, you can find me at Bill Bennett with two T's NZ, Bill Bennett NZ, and my website is BillBennett.co.nz. Great. And Mark. And yeah, tonight you'll find me on Twitter, MarkIL03, uh, and also Tech Research AP uh, on Twitter and on LinkedIn. Excellent, excellent. That's good. Good. And uh, people can track me down, uh, Paul Spain on Twitter. Uh, and for Gorilla Technology, you can uh, find Gorilla online at gorillatechnology.com. Uh, details there about uh, all the uh, all the bits and pieces that Gorilla does. Um, of a, a lot of interest we've been getting recently is around uh, the cybersecurity training that we're offering. There's been a lot uh, going on in the market around uh, reducing risk around cybersecurity. And uh, one of the areas that uh, we We've, we've noticed it seems to be really uh, lacking for a lot of organisations is uh, awareness amongst their staff of sort of, you know, often very basic security practices around how they manage passwords and um, other things that for uh, tech professionals might seem really obvious, uh, but they're things that workforces need to get trained up in, and whether that's at the CEO level or whether that's just you know any computer user, it's, it's something that's important to get across the uh, board. Well, that's us for this week. Thanks, everyone. We will catch you again next week for the next episode. See ya. The New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Gorilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT. Thank <laughs> you.